Hey, Mom. Hey, sweetie. How are you feeling today? Well, maybe I could be a little better. <laughs> I guess I'm fine. <laughs> what about you? Well, we all have ups and downs and, and good days and bad days and things like that. But um, I'm glad for us that we try to look at things, you know, find the the happy parts of our day to focus on. I think this episode is going to be great for, well, pretty much everyone because we're all going to go through some sort of trauma and grief in our lives and the other people around us that are close to us are too. So she answered questions about, for us, how to get through it, but also how, what do you say to someone who has lost someone? We're always wondering that. And everyone says it's fine to say nothing, you know, just to sit with them. But I loved her answer gave us a little more concrete of a of a way to go about it and things like that. I think that this is just a great episode for for everybody to hear, you know, especially in times like if you are going through something collectively like COVID. So let's get to it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Style That Binds Us podcast. We are excited to have Dr. Karen Binder Brines on our podcast today. She is a leading psychologist and has had a private practice in New York City for over 25 years. She has a general practice, but she's also a trauma specialist and has worked with frontline COVID-19 workers, firefighters after 9-11. She did some work in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. She's worked with Holocaust survivors and so much more. She regularly contributes to The New Yorker, Tracy Anderson, Bustle, Vogue, Goop, and more. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me today. Well, Karen, let's jump right in and start talking about the most relevant thing, maybe, talking to us about COVID and grief for frontline workers, also any of your clients, how is everyone feeling? Uh, Well, first of all, we all have to realize that we are living in absolutely unprecedented times. Um, Yes, there were pandemics before, but never in, in, in such a worldwide and connected time as now. Mm-hmm. And um, it has, it, it's, it's a trauma worldwide for people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really wreaked havoc in our psyches, in our economic lives. Uh, there's been tremendous amount of grief and mourning. People have lost friends and relatives. Um, in this country, we also have political battles going on that that don't help all of this. So, it's 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 quite traumatic on many 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 levels. It's true, and one of the most confusing things for me has been that it affects everyone so differently. So yeah. it's hard when you have a platform to be able to. Who are you talking to? Are you talking to the people that are just kind of bored and annoyed with the situation and, and all of that? Or are you talking to someone who's suffered tremendous loss? It's just mm-hmm. so hard to navigate. Yes, I think that's a really good point. And I love the word navigate because that's really what you have to do when you have a platform or when you're doing the work that I do, which is helping people. Because people are at all levels of... Mm-hmm 
um, experiencing this depending on how this pandemic has hit them. Everything, of course, from losing a job to losing a very close family member or friend where you couldn't even be with them in their final moments, which has just added such, such trauma. Oh, my goodness. Right. And then also reading the article that you wrote about the frontline workers and dealing with all of that death. I think Mm -hmm. they they they're all changed people Mm -hmm. forever. And then so talk to us more about the frontline healthcare workers for COVID-19. I feel like dealing with all of that death. I was reading an article that you had written. They are changed people forever. Oh, oh yeah. This has been, this has been really, really um, terrible. Um, it's uh, of course now in New York where I am, uh, it's gotten a little bit better, but there, of course there's other parts of the country now where people are on the front line. You know, People that are healthcare workers dedicate their lives to helping others. They put their lives in danger all the time because they are exposed to diseases or tough situations. But this, this again, there's nothing. There's been nothing like this. Um, my it just so happens that my next door neighbor in my apartment building was an anesthesiologist at Elmhurst Hospital, okay. which was at the height. It was yeah. the epicenter in New York City, and you know, I would I would see her, and she would just be exhausted and drained. And in the beginning, they didn't have the right equipment. They didn't have the um, PPE, the PPP equipment that they needed, which only added to the stress and trauma. Right. And then coupled with that, um, I think we've gotten better now in understanding how to treat the COVID. But in the beginning, they were in a tunnel without any light. And um, not only that, they were dealing with people whose family members couldn't be there. And they were taking people to their deaths um, without any, without any you know, family or friends. And so it was a multiple layer trauma, which made it all so much more complicated. And then you add to that exhaustion, uncertainty, and on top of all of that terrible fear that they were going to get sick. And of course, many of them did get sick. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was, I think what was helpful was that they felt that the community was really supporting them. And we had talked earlier, um, we had talked earlier before we started um, recording about how in many, many cities all over the world, every single night, um, people would come out and clap and cheer for the frontline workers. And that helped them. It gave them a boost, but it also helped all of us Mm -hmm. come together and really realize how connected that we all are. Mm -hmm. Um, Because one of the worst things about being traumatized is the feeling of isolation. Um, When when someone is going through a trauma, um, we tend to feel like we're all alone with that trauma, which is terrible. And so the more people can feel community and connection and commonality, it is... It's a slight antidote to the terrible fear and uncertainty that trauma creates for people. And so there was, if you remember, there were so many um, 
Instagram posts and TikTok and you'd see frontline workers creating dances together and hugging each other and therapy dogs coming and people in the community bringing food and standing outside and helping. And all of that helped mitigate some of the horrible, dark terror of the, of, you know, the, the early days for New York. And now in other parts of the right. country, they're experiencing that. Right. That makes sense. It, it really is. It is, once again, like you said, unprecedented to, you know, to not even know when it's going to end or every day we talk to someone who she was just in, she's in her residency in neurosurgery in New York City. They picked her up and put her in the ICU for respiratory and the beginning, she and her, a bunch of her peers and they every day she said you'd come in and they'd say okay now it's attacking the brain now it's attacking you know right every day right. with some new unbelievable situation you know it so yes. it's it's really but the other thing that i do think like what you're saying is i have never felt more alone but at the same time i have felt very tender and close to some stranger in milan italy Yes. Yes. We're alone, but we are so together in a global way that it's, it's a phenomenon. Yes. I I think that's a really good point that, um, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned this to Delia, but I've been doing yoga for over 25 years and, you know, the whole yoga community believes in connectedness that we're all connected. And I do think that this pandemic made us realize not only how connected we all are, but how connected we also are to the earth and the climate. Right. And that, you know, some of these, some of this has to do with climate change and people living closer and closer to um, animals and dealing with, and animals having to adapt to human beings. And um, I do think that there was a universality to this. Mm-hmm. And I hope, I do hope that it, it stays after this pandemic leaves, that we see that we all are interconnected and we have to be in order to keep surviving as a species. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what are some tips for how to stay mentally healthy during COVID since we still don't know when this is ever going to end? Right. Well, I think the most important thing is the word connected. I think that it is very, very crucial for people to stay connected to their friends, to their doctors, to their loved ones, to their children, their families, um, to their communities. The sense of connectedness is a great antidote to the loneliness and isolation and terror that people have been feeling. So number one is staying connected. Um, Number two, doing everything you can to stay physically okay. Because when we're under stress, our body releases chemicals um, and hormones, particularly adrenaline and cortisol, which are two stress hormones that are very needed for our survival. We have to know when we're in danger. We have to have fear responses. But 
when our fear responses are constant, like they have been for so long now, for so many months, it dysregulates the stress hormones in our body. And that causes all kinds of issues, not only physically, but mentally. So this very important to do anything you can to keep your body and your stress hormones at bay. That would include eating well, exercise, getting fresh air when you can, and um, uh, making sure, and this is very important, I think people were so terrified of the illness that they were ignoring other medical conditions that might be going on for them. And as a result, there were a lot of deaths that came from that. So trying to be in touch with your body, if there's something going on in your body that isn't right, going to the doctor or telemedicine is now so prevalent. Um, So those are a few things. Staying connected and staying as physically healthy as you can. And then in terms of emotional and mental wellness, reading things that are inspirational helps. Um, reaching out to therapists if you need it. There are hotlines that have sprung up all over um, for people to find another human voice to talk to because one of the problems that's come for this is that there's so much isolation, especially for people that are homebound or living alone or have lost somebody. And that sense of, um, of isolation is also very bad for our health, very bad. So um, reaching out, even if it's to a stranger on the other end of a phone line, is very, very important. So, and how can they find these hotlines? Um, That's a good question. I think that in every community, um, all you probably have to do is Google hotline, mental hotline, domestic abuse hotline. Unfortunately, there's been a uptick in domestic violence and so sadly pet violence Um, and there are hotlines so i think just googling or in certain places i know in new york city you can dial um 311 and that will get you through to somebody who would also uh lead you to the right services Mm -hmm. Um, but so important to know there's someone you can reach out to morning noon and in the middle of the night if you have to Domestic abuse, as we mentioned, is definitely on the high rise. And it's very, very hard when people are trapped at home and social isolating to get away from their abusers. So, um, however, if someone is in a situation that they feel that they are in danger, to do whatever they can to get the word out to somebody who might be able to help, um, which is, this has been one of the problems because people are trapped. It's hard for them to get away from their abusers to even make a call to a hotline. Um, But it's, it's so, so important to try to come up with a creative way to reach outside if you're in danger, you know? Yeah. Cause I think maybe if there was an option for texting or some other way, Yes, anything, anything, putting, putting a note in the mailbox so the mailman or mailwoman can see it. I, people, people have been very creative in trying to get the SOS out during a time like this. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 
You wrote such an insightful article for Tracy Anderson. Can you walk us through the stages of grief? I thought that you articulated what we are going through globally so well. Right. Well, back in the late 60s, um, a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross mm -hmm. wrote a seminal book called On Death and Dying. And she was really one of the first modern thinkers to put together um, a semblance of what some of the most universal stages of grief are. And um, there's always grief in life. You know, early on in life, you, you could lose a beloved pet when you're a child. That's grief. Um, uh, and then on through life, of course, losing loved ones, losing jobs, losing uh, relationships, etc. So there really are some universal stages. And the first one is usually shock. Mm -hmm. Even when you're prepared for somebody to die, like a parent who might have a chronic and long-term illness, mm -hmm. at the moment that they die, there's still shock. Mm -hmm. um, and shock is really an adaptive way for our bodies and our souls to begin to cope with grief. Mm -hmm. um, it gives us a chance, it gives our brain a chance to get ready to be able to absorb the full impact of loss. So in the beginning, in the pandemic, for instance, uh, we began to hear about this virus. We knew it was in China. Next thing we knew, Tom Hanks had it in Australia and an and a NBA basketball star had it. And all of a sudden, it started hitting closer to home. And we all were still going about our lives. We knew something was coming. It felt like a tsunami but we didn't really know. And we all were in shock in the beginning. And what was interesting, and, and you know, it's, it's sort of humorous now to look back, I think where a lot of people put their shock was into things like how much toilet paper they could be able to get. So people became obsessed about toilet paper, hand sanitizer, Clorox wipes, et cetera. And it was really... It was important because in the early stages of any kind of trauma, the most important thing is basic survival. Mm. And so back in the beginning, when we were still in shock that how could this even be happening, people put all their attention into getting those basics. Right. And they weren't really thinking about the terror yet of, you know, actually what getting sick would look like. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, and, and there were plenty of people that were in such shock that they weren't even paying attention to the, you know, need to socially isolate, wear masks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, and when you lose, so that's the pandemic, but when you lose somebody or when you have, when something tragic comes out of nowhere, um, our bodies respond by going into a kind of shutdown, um, and that's what shock is. And then that begins to wear off. Mm -hmm. And when that begins to wear off, other things start happening. And uh, the next thing that happens is denial. And a lot of people go into this, no, it's not really happening. It can't be happening. I can't believe it's happening. Um, how did how did this person die? 
um, why them? And um, so we, we go into this kind of stage after shock where we can't really face what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then after time, and, and let me just backtrack for a minute. There is no book of rules about grief. Right. There is no timeline that's universal. People go through grief at different stages in different ways, and there should be no judgment. There, in, in very small percentage of the population, there can be something called um, pathological grief. And this is when someone a year later, two years later, four years later, hasn't made any movement at all. Mm-hmm. away from the initial power of their grief. Most, most people will begin to move on through grief, maybe at different paces, maybe at different levels. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's something important to know, that most people are going to grieve and they're going to go through these stages. However, they're going to go through them differently and at different times. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about shock, we've talked about denial, then we get into stages where people start bargaining. They might bargain things like, if my mother gets better, I will never eat a cookie again. You right. know? <laughs> if I, you know, I, I, I'll be a good person, I'll never tell a lie again if this happens. And, and our, it's, a, it's another way of our brains trying to find what is the hardest thing about being traumatized, which is that we feel out of control. Right. And as human beings, we do not want to be out of control. It's too scary. It's too uncertain. And so our minds will do things to try to make us feel in control. So I'll give you an example. Delia, you mentioned that I work with 9-11 survivors. After 9-11 in New York City, people that survived, people that lost family members, many became absolutely obsessed with how the buildings collapsed. How how, um, hot did the oil from the planes have to heat up in order to melt the, the structure of the building so it collapsed? as if that would bring their loved one back. Mm. But, but, but what it really was, was that if they could only figure out how come those buildings collapsed, it would give them some sense of control. Right. And so one of the things that we do when we're traumatized is we scurry mentally to find ways to be in control. So in grief, when we are out of control, because when someone dies, if there's a breakup, if there's a job loss, a lot of times we we feel like we're not in control. Mm -hmm. And so we will try to get into control. And one of the ways to do that is with bargaining. If only, if only, if only. And that, that stage lasts until another stage occurs, which is um, often depression. And um, that's the loss. That's when we can feel the actual, we begin to feel the actual loss. We're no longer in shock. We've kind of stopped denying. We've done the bargaining, trying to get back in control. And then we find that we're still there. We're still grieving. And at that point, we can get depressed. 
and, um, and sad and feel a lack of pleasure in things and feel hopeless sometimes. Hopefully for most people, that depression doesn't go to a, a, such a deep level that we have to worry about them. It's a normal stage. Mm-hmm. It's a normal stage. How can we not be sad when there's been a great loss? And in, back to the pandemic for a minute, I mean, the great, besides the terrible, terrible toll it's taken on families and so, so many deaths, we've lost our freedom. We've lost our freedom to just move around freely, to right. see each other's faces, to get on airplanes, to travel, to be with our grandchildren or our children for, for months at a time. So, you know, the losses were, were very, very powerful um, in this pandemic. And um, of course, there has been, you know, uh, depression that's been um, involved with that. Um, and then... And then we begin after time for most of us to, to accept, to start accepting the reality. And one of the things that I think we have seen through this pandemic is the incredible, incredible adaptiveness right. of our species. I mean, if we think about it, since March, the whole world shut down. Yeah. The whole world shut down. And we learned how to socially isolate. We learned how to Zoom. We learned how to use social media in a whole new way. Um, we, we've adapted rapidly as, as an entire species, which is, is so profound, um, but also in some ways quite reassuring to see the level of adaptation. And Delia, you mentioned the other uh, things that I've dealt with as a trauma specialist, you know, the thing that has always struck me about humanity is just what I said, that we are incredible. uh, We are the most incredibly adaptive species. And the same way that we adapted to, to the change, we adapt to our losses for the most part. We learn to live with them. And um, there's another stage of grief that has emerged. Um, One of the colleagues of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is, um, he, he's, his name is Dr. Kessler. And he worked with her for many years. And he actually created another stage of grief. And I think the most important stage, which is finding meaning in our losses. Mm. I listened to Joe Biden last night on the, uh, in the National uh, Democratic Convention. And forget politics. Forget that, that he's a Democrat or he's not a Republican. That doesn't matter. This man has lost right. uh, his wife, a daughter, and then more recently his son. And he talked about the importance of grief is terrible. It can bring you to your knees. Right. But what helps is finding meaning mm-hmm. and purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think during COVID, people, and we've all seen on social media, amazing signs of humanity. People having birthday parties where people drive by. Right. People helping other people. People feeding frontliners. People making masks at home to try to help. All, all of these 
things help give us meaning and purpose, which is the most important need when you've been traumatized and when you're suffering grief. Mm. Finding meaning, finding purposeness. And it's, it's, it's hard to find meaning right now in this pandemic. Right. But one of the things that Dr. Kessler talks about, which I've been just repeating everywhere, is we may not be able to find meaning globally right now, but what each one of us can find is meaningful moments. Yeah. Meaningful moments, appreciating small things, Mm -hmm. finding meaning in, in, in being that moment of connection with somebody, whether it's Zooming or on the phone or making a good meal or reading something good or listening to a podcast that's meaningful. Um, getting up in the morning and still putting on makeup. You know, I know that sounds crazy, but little, little things that help give us yeah. some sense of meaning and normalcy is very, very important. Right. The little routines in life. Absolutely. Or just that moment that you have with, with when you can finally maybe stop isolating and, and be in a bubble with somebody that you hadn't seen for three months. How, how meaningful to see a loved one's face again. Right, right. Especially if you're like me with my father has, um, I guess he's in the middle stages of Alzheimer's. So we haven't, we've seen him through the window, but we haven't seen him in months. And that's been really devastating for my mother. But, you know, the other thing, too, people have said to me, um, we haven't had a spring like this in years, you know, and I said, actually, we have. We just haven't been looking. That's true. That's very important. It's very important. Such a miracle, such a soul saver, I feel like, you know, this particular year when spring actually showed up. All right. Now, tell us your thoughts about this. This is something I've never heard of before, how New York City is headed into a, is it Waymar culture? One of the things I think we've all seen on social media is the amazing creativity of humanity, mm-hmm. um, the, 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 the art, the music, right. the way people have come together, the, you know, doing Zoom concerts, Zoom right. um, art. It, it's, it, again, it's all part of what I was saying before. We are incredibly adaptive mm-hmm. as a species. And, you know, I learned a lot working with Holocaust survivors. Um, and I work with many, many, many people that survived the European Holocaust, mm-hmm. not just Jewish people, because it wasn't just Jew- Jewish people that were affected. It was anybody that wasn't ordinary. Mm-hmm. which included the LBGTQ. Oh, it included, you know, anybody, can you imagine anybody with any kind of disability? Oh, oh my God. So, but let me tell you what I learned, that even in the worst and unimaginable human conditions people found themselves in, there was even there creativity, art, music, and ceremonies. It wasn't unusual, even in a concentration camp like Auschwitz, for there to be a wedding, oh. a bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah, a baptism. Wow. If a baby was born there. It was amazing that in, in this 
most horrible, horrible environment, human beings found a way to be creative, connected, and celebratory. Wow. Maybe more important than ever. It was more important than ever. So um, that's one of the meaningful things that we should take out of this is they can they you know that we were locked down we were locked in we were terrified of our economic futures Mm -hmm. our health future our climate future and even in that situation Mm -hmm. out came the most incredible music art and literature i'm sure this um, you know writing that people are doing who knows what we're gonna all the good things that are going So talk to us about losing a parent. Yes. At the different ages. So young, like mom when she was two, or like mm-hmm. in and after college versus later in life, it must affect people in different ways. Yes. When you lose a parent before you're verbal, at two, you were not verbal. Right. And... When we have traumas that occur before we have words, Mm. they impact us very differently throughout our life because we didn't have words to attach to what was going on. So for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, a, A man that I work with that survived the Holocaust, he was very, very young. He was five years old um, in Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. And he's gone on to become a world famous photographer. Mm -hmm. But if you, he survived, but if obviously, but if you look at his art, and I I don't want to reveal his name because, you know, confidentiality, but if you look at his art, his art is incredibly disjointed. It's beautiful, Mm -hmm. but his imagery is there could be some, a very dark image superimposed on something very light. Um, So it could be a beautiful woman's body coming out of an angry crow's, Mm. uh, I mean, a beautiful woman's face emerging out of an angry crow's body. And um, I was interviewed about him and I said, you know, if you look at his pictures, they reflect his trauma because his trauma occurred before he was really verbal. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is he has survived. There's, he's had gone on to have children and a life and, a, and he's famous career. But his early beginnings were very, very dark. And you see it in his art. So it comes out that way. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example of, of trauma at a very young age. What happens is the traumas become deeply embedded in our unconscious when they occur early. And they pop out in all kinds of ways, some healthy and some not, when we're adults. When you lose somebody at a different stage of life, it's different. Right. Because you you have words. You can attach meaning and some metaphor to your losses. Um, So, of course, a teenager, in a teenager, teenagers are pretty self-centered. There's a reason for that. Believe it or not, there's a chemistry, a brain chemistry to that. Um, So when they have losses, it's it's very hard and very profound, but they're also very, very concerned at the time with what's going on in their their social lives, in their love lives. Um, So they, they have that sort of 
balance. And then when we're adults and we lose somebody, it's very, very different because, um, you know, if, especially if it's a parent, it's the end of an era. It's, 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 it's the ripping away of this kind of, um, it's an illusion between us and, and heaven, you know, like we're the next layer when we lose a parent. So that brings up all kinds of issues for us. There's nobody over us anymore, especially right. if you've lost two parents. Um, on the other hand, we often have other things that are giving us love and meaning like children or grandchildren, friends. Um, right. And so hopefully we get support from that. As you were mentioning before, if you have a father that's ill but, uh, or, or who has passed away and then you have a mother, you have to worry about the other parent. Right. So if you, you know, and we're talking about losing parents. I mean, God forbid right. you lose a child. Right. You know, the hardest thing that I've ever had to deal with doing the work I do is working with people that are losing or have lost a child. I mean, there's just... There's just nothing worse. And um, again, the way to survive that is to find some kind of meaning and purpose so that the loss isn't in vain. Um, but, you know, there, there's, a hole, there's a hole in one's heart that I don't think ever goes away. Right. You can build a bridge over it. That's the way I talk about it. You can't, you can never get rid of it, but you have to build a bridge over it so that you can go on. Mm -hmm. And so again, you know, depending on where you are in life, depending on what your other connections are, depending on how, if you have faith, and that we haven't even talked about faith yet, um, faith helps people sure. uh, during, during these terrible, terrible moments. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Delia was asking me because she, she gave me the question to ask you about giving us advice for someone who has lost a child. And I said, I can't even, it's even hard to ask the question. And she said, why is that so much worse? And I said, you know, in Hamilton, when, when the woman sings the song about, when they sing the song about they're, they're getting through the unimaginable, Mm -hmm. with their son I guess because Daya hasn't had a child yet she you know maybe you can't even fathom what that would be like you know but yeah. they've had a child realize that there's nothing that could be worse ever no no and and I think until you do become a, a parent it's right. very very hard because it's it's Again, it's one of those things that our minds can't really take in. It's just so painful that uh, we, it's hard to even think about it happening. And when it does happen, um, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult. It, it wreaks havoc on the marriages. It's very tough for siblings, surviving siblings. Um, and, and, and people need a lot of help and a lot of support. Mm -hmm. um, and, but again, the human spirit, the human spirit is indomitable. It really is. People survive things that, that are totally unimaginable. Mm -hmm. And when you do, God forbid, when one is confronted, people find strength inside that they, they can't even believe they have. 
-hmm. We are really incredibly strong, resilient species. Mm -hmm. We really are. And I think that's so important for all of us to hear right now that we will get through this. We will grow from this. Um, we will find new and deep meanings in our connections and hopefully in our connection to, to our climate. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to hold on to that. You know, I, I talk a lot about the difference between faith and hope. Okay. And I was actually misquoted in the New Yorker about this. <laughs> um, what I say is that, um, Faith is very, very important in the present. In order to get through each day right now, we all have to have faith. We have to have faith in ourselves. We have to have faith in our government. We have to have faith in science. We have to have faith that things are going to work out. That's now. Hope, I think, is what keeps us going towards the future. Right. Mm -hmm. That as long as we have hope, we can keep moving forward. And that's what kept people alive. You know, I interviewed hundreds of Holocaust survivors in a five-year period, and I would always ask the question, what kept you going? Because when you were in a concentration camp, it was was very easy to let go of your life. Mm. Um, You could stop eating. People, there were electric fences. There were all kinds of ways. And so, and many, 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 many people did give up and we'll never know their stories. Mm -hmm. But the people that survived, and I would say, what kept you going? How? How? And one after another said the same word to me, hope. Mm -hmm. They had hope that they would survive, that they'd somehow be reunited with their families, that they'd get back to their life. And it was that hope the tiny speck of hope that kept people going through unimaginable mm. hardship mm. and terror. Yes. Mm. That's like in Hamilton when he says, dying is easy, living is harder. Yeah, it is. But without, I, you know, just before we got on this podcast, I was doing a session with a young woman I've been working with who's very, very depressed. She lives alone in New York City. She had had a breakup right before the pandemic, and then she got furloughed from her job, and she is clinging right now to Mm. hope. Mm. Um, And um, every time we're doing a session, we're infusing hope that things are going to get better, that she's going to meet somebody, that her job is going to come back. Yeah. Um, And that's what she's living on right now is hope. Right. Right. Exactly. So are the stages of mourning different than the stages of grief? Well, mourning, mourning, it's all part of the grief stages. But what we didn't get to is what I call the acceptance of the permanence. Mm. Once you're through the shock and denial and the bargaining and the depression, and getting to the acceptance, I think that's when the real mourning starts because that's when you start accepting the permanence of the loss. And it doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. I mean, my father passed away very, very suddenly when my children were, um, I think they were about nine and 12 and they adored him and it was very sudden. Mm. And it took me a couple of years, you know, as you mentioned before, I was worrying about my mother. 
I had two young children. I was working full time. I was also in the middle of a, a divorce. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have the time mm-hmm. to really, really mourn. I did go through grief. I did go through those stages. But the, you know, when the mourning occurred, mm-hmm. two years later, I was packing my daughter's camp trunks. They were going to sleepaway camp. Mm-hmm. And my father was a World War II veteran. He was an engineer. He prided himself on knowing how to pack. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't fit everything. You know, girls, they have to take everything sure. at the kitchen sink to cam. <laughs> and so I couldn't fit everything in their canvas two duffel bags. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I broke down. I got hysterical. I could not stop crying. Mm-hmm. And I realized at that moment, two years later, that if my father was here, mm-hmm. I would have called him and said, Dad, you have to come over and pack the camp trunks. <laughs> right. But he wasn't here. Yes. And that's when the permanence of his death hit me. Mm-hmm. And it took two years. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I still can't believe it sometimes. And that was 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. So, you know, but what I will say is, and and Joe Biden said this last night, and it really struck me, you may lose somebody, their physical body may not be here, right? but you never lose their spirit in your heart. Right. You never do. I'm sure you hear, like I hear my grandmother talking to me all the time. You know, your father every day. Get I up. hear my father every day, and um, he's with me every day, as is my beloved grandparents, Right. Um, as is my mother, who's no longer here, um, right. and they, they, that never leaves you. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So I'm going to, another quote that oh, has always stuck with me, because when you lose somebody, you have many, many memories of them, mm-hmm. and I once heard a quote that said, memories are not something you've lost there's something you have. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that keeps me going a lot. The memories, you have them, they're there. Yes, definitely. And they'll never leave. So we have to, you know, again, though, getting back to the early loss, like you experiencing losing your dad at two, you don't have right. probably as many memories, but people have told you about your father. Right. And you probably have pictures of your father. Right. Um, and your father is inside of you. So you may not have active memories, but you definitely have his spirit inside. Right. And then when I was young, it was too difficult for my mother to tell me about him too, so without breaking down. So then I really didn't want to know anything because it was I didn't like to see my mother upset. So, you know, there's complications to everything. But anyway, yes, definitely there are. And also, I think when you're super young, you can't talk to your friends about it. No. Again, you don't have the words verbally in order to talk about it. So it's a whole new level. And as a therapist, my job is to recognize in my patients where those traumas are seeping out now. Right. Yeah. It makes sense what you said about wanting to gain a sense of control. So I became Mm -hmm. so, 
you know, controlling, I would be nervous whenever I didn't have control over where Delia was going, even if it was school, something bad was going to happen to her. So mm-hmm. you have to learn to find a higher power or whatever it is so that you can realize I can't control everything, even if right. I want. That's right. It's that's important. right. And it's re- that's the hardest thing for human beings to come to grips with is the fact is we have no control. Mm-hmm. We really don't. Um, like the only thing we have control over is how we react and experience what happens to us. That's a great perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, and that's, you know, that's, that's the importance of having faith and being connected and not being afraid to talk and not being ashamed. That's the other word I want to talk about because, you know, one of the worst parts of being traumatized is shame. Right. Um, and um, no one, you know, if you have pets, even dogs, you know, if you yell at your dog, they go and they hide. They put their tail between their legs. They, they, nobody wants to be shamed. No. It's a terrible feeling. Terrible. And terrible. often trauma causes shame. Like uh, the example I always use is, um, and there's terrible fires going on in California as we speak right now. And if the CNN cameras show up in a high school gymnasium where people are living because their homes have burnt down and they're temporarily sheltered, you know what they're feeling? They're ashamed. Right. Even though there was nothing that they did wrong. Right. Just the fact that they were put in this position by nature. Right and have a lost everything right. creates a sense of shame. Interesting. Very interesting. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's so important to deal with that, you know, people that are helping people because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's debilitating to feel shame. We've all felt shame. Right. Oh my goodness. Exactly. Yes. So when we lose a job, a relationship, it could be friend or romantic, a time in our life ends, having to give up on a dream. That is a time when sometimes people are going to be grieving, but maybe they're not even thinking about it in that way. So let's talk about that, that it's okay. normal okay to do that. Yes. I mean, look, loss is loss. And one of the things that when you're a trauma person, you learn is that it isn't the trauma that matters. What matters is that how people react to trauma. So, you know, people try to compare, well, you know, I lost this, I lost a job, I lost a relationship, you know, you know, mine's worse than yours. None of that matters. What matters is, is the, the feeling of loss. Right. Whatever the loss is, losing a job is huge. It's our identity. It's our financial security. Losing a relationship is huge. It's our connection. It's our future. It's, it's, it's our way of living, you know, um, losing our freedom right now, not being able to, you know, uh, I have a 90 year old aunt that was in a nursing home in Maine. I can't see her. Right. You know, um, these, these are all losses and traumas and it's not, exactly what the loss is it's it's the universality is how we deal with it as humans and i think it's important for people to be aware of that and not be judgmental sure of themselves or others of themselves or others that's it's i'm glad you said of themselves because 
someone may have just broken up with a boy or a girl or whoever their partner was and be walking around saying, um, um, you know, this is terrible, this is terrible, but how can I feel this when people are losing loved right. ones to death all over? Well, we all have a right to feel our losses. Right. It doesn't mean that we're not aware that some people's losses are more grave than ours or less grave than ours. We, but we, need to, we have to allow ourselves to feel what we need to feel because the more we do that, the more we can get up. And I think if you read what I wrote, I think you mentioned, Delia, that you read what I wrote in Goop about grief years ago. Mm-hmm. And the analogy I made was, if you've ever been in the ocean jumping waves, if a giant wave is coming towards you and you just stand up, I'm going to face this wave. What happens? The wave knocks you down. And then you're swirling underneath the undertow with your face getting cut on the rocks, right? But if the wave is coming towards you and you dive through the wave and let it wash over you, you stand right up again. And I think that's what it is. We have to let our feelings in. Yes. I totally agree. The, the better we, the quicker we let our feelings in, the quicker they wash over us, we feel them, and then we can stand up and move on. It's when we try to put blockades up that things leak out all over the place in ways that are not constructive. Right. Sure, I know, because it's important to feel even how small it is, like, oh, this is such a shame, I'm missing a whole social life or whatever, and I'm living with my parents, but then you can always say, oh, well, somebody else has it better, worse, worse. worse. somebody else has it much worse than you, but it's important to acknowledge it's your feelings too. No, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Again, going back to the session I just had, this young woman, she's in her late 20s, and she said to me, this, I'm in the prime of my life, and everything's on hold. Right. And, you know, yes, and yes. And then she said, but how can I feel bad about that when people are dying all over the place? Right. You, can feel, you can feel bad about that. That's your loss right now. Right. That's your, you're not saying that, you know, someone shouldn't feel horrible that they've lost a loved one to COVID, but you still have a right to feel what you need to feel. Mm-hmm. Right. And you are feeling it. That's the point. We're feeling it. Right. No matter what it is, you're feeling it. And it's, and you know, when you can let yourself feel it, then you go through it, you cry, you, you wipe yourself up, you stand up and you say, okay, now what can I do? Right. Delia said, now I'm going to teach myself to play guitar, which she has done during COVID. I which know. is great. And a lot of people are doing, finding skills and developing skills. That's great, Delia. You yeah. know? Yes. Right. It's interesting about feelings with males. They don't really like to feel very much sometimes because <laughs> it can be a little bit scary or even females. It's hard to be vulnerable. Right. No, it's hard to be vulnerable. And, you know, look, one of the things that we're seeing is there's a lot, there's an uptick in drug abuse, alcohol abuse, mm-hmm. uh, the levels of anti-anxiety medications, anti-depression medications are up. I have a patient I'm talking to in London 
and they're out of medication in London. She can't get, she can't get her medication. I mean, that's how, that's how many people are using wow. medications and substances right now to cope. And I'm not against using medication. I, in many, many cases, it's very, very necessary. But it's also very necessary to do the things that you just mentioned, like Delia, like teaching yourself a new skill. Right. You know. We're laughing. My daughter loved my daughter. One of my daughters is a foodie. Um, she actually has a mini cupcake company, but Ooh. all she wanted to do was bake bread in the beginning. She couldn't find yeast anywhere. Right. Right. Because everybody was baking bread to try and feel better. That's right. right. Finding healthy ways to escape is important. Right. And That's, it's very important. We need to escape. And um, we also, the other analogy I always use is, you know, and here, this is to you, mama, when you get on an airplane yeah. and, and you're traveling and the stewardesses and stewards come out and they say, if the oxygen masks fall down and you're traveling with children, what do you do? You put the mask on yourself first. Right. Because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anybody else. Yes. Well, that's exactly. Mom kept saying, well, who's taking care of the therapist? Right. <laughs> and I asked you that, too, in the first conversation. Remember what I said? <laughs> yes, but you can say it better than me. Well, I, you know, what I have done is I, I've done yoga for many years. And being on my yoga mat is a very, very grounding place for me to be. You know why? It's certainty. Right. Yeah. I put that mat down on the ground now. I don't, I don't know how many times. And when I put that mat down, even if I don't do a movement on it, ah. even if I just sit on it, right. it's a place of grounding for me. Um, so that's been important. Being, you know, being in touch with my friends and my, my children and my grandbabies, um, yes. you know, all of that is very important. And helping others, uh, you know, one of the best antidotes to depression and isolation is to put yourself out there and help somebody else. Yes. Yes. It, it, it lifts your spirit, even if it's just making a donation, right? You know, a GoFundMe <laughs> donation, you know, it's even that two seconds, you know what it does? It releases dopamine in our brains and dopamine we talked before a lot about adrenaline and cortisol, which are stress hormones. But what dopamine is, is a pleasure hormone. Um, and any time we do anything good for anybody else, our brain gets flooded with dopamine. Yeah. And that dopamine is an antidote to um, sadness and anxiety. So anything you can do that stimulates that in yourself is going to be helpful. You know, someone asked me, they said, how would, they said that people with childhood trauma right now are feeling this, what's going on with COVID, um, you know, they're, it's, it's, it's bad for them, especially because they are, there's this unending, there's no end to it that they mm -hmm. can see. And so they're living in that anxiety again. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think Dee and I have been so busy racking our brains for every possible way that we can provide an escape or 
a sense of positivity or, you know, let's get someone on the podcast like you to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Take people virtually to Italy because they all had to cancel their trips this summer. Anything we could think of. So I've been so busy. That's great. That I really haven't time to sit and think about me so much and how, how scary this could, you know, this could be. Well, that's a perfect example of what we were just talking about. Every time you do something good, like take, you know, plan the virtual trip to Italy and your brain is involved in that, in that moment, your brain is releasing good chemicals that are then telling your body and telling your soul that you're okay. You see, all of these chemicals in our body, our brain interprets So when there's a lot of adrenaline pouring out, what your brain is interpreting is that you're in danger. Mm. Mm -hmm. When dopamine is pouring out, your brain, your body is interpreting that as, okay, everything's okay for right now. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I'm okay. Yeah. That's interesting. We took the science of well-being. It was uh, on Coursera, Yale. Mm-hmm. It's their most popular course, and they offered it for free. We recommend yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that we learned is that helping people, we learned what we think is going to make us happy versus what actually makes us happy, and helping others mm-hmm. really, really, really does make us so happy, just exactly as you were saying. That's it. I mean, you know, we're programmed, we are programmed to be communal as humans. We are programmed to help each other. Um, when um, my husband and I went to Tanzania about 17 years ago, and we had the wonderful opportunity for a few days to be among hunter and gatherers, one of the last hunter and gatherer tribes on earth. They're called the Aki. And what was so profound about being among these people, and I never forgot it, was um, how they helped each other in their little you know, hunter and gathering, a nomadic community, there was such a sense of people helping each other, the younger people helping the elderly, um, the community helping anyone with a disability. Um, It was so simple, such a simple community, but such a profound human Mm -hmm. um, truism to witness among them. And, you know, we've evolved away from hunter and gatherers into this very complex technical society, but at our core, deep down, what gives us meaning is our community and helping. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Yeah, so good for you for doing things right now to help your your community that's listening to you. I mean, that's very important. It takes you outside of yourself. Yeah. What, what advice do you have for friends and family of someone who is grieving? Like being patient. The best question you can ask somebody, especially in acute grief, you know, when it's acute just grief. happened. Okay. Acute grief is like that moment, you know, someone just found out their spouse died. You know, they're, they're in, you know, they're, they're in shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're, you know, absolutely, you know, in that moment of terror. Mm-hmm. The, the, the best question you can ask is, what do you need? Okay. What do you need? They may say, I need to be left alone right now. They may say, I need food in the refrigerator so I don't have to worry about it. 
Mm-hmm. They may see, uh, I need you to help me make funeral arrangements. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, but, but to say, what do you, what do you need from me? Mm-hmm. Is, is really, because I think people run in and they try to do things. And what happens is people in acute grief get very overwhelmed, feeling like they have to take care of the other people that are worrying about them. Okay. Interesting. Okay. What do you need? And then sometimes it's not even asking. It's showing up with food. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, uh, it's making arrangements with friends to have the kids picked up from school. Exactly. It's, um, you know, uh, making sure that, that the house gets clean for somebody. I mean, little, little things. What they're going to wear. A lot of times I'm going in and saying, what are you going to wear? Let's, I'll bring in some dresses if you don't have it. Right, right. That, and that's a very important thing that someone's not thinking about in that moment that you can then help with whatever your skills are, right. whatever you can contribute. Right. But one of the things that happens a lot, you know, it, just to say it again, is when people are going through a crisis, everybody runs in and wants to help. And what we don't want is for someone in that kind of grief to feel they have to take care of the other people that are wanting to take care of them. Right. Sure. Right. And then what, what happens, you know, people are like, oh, okay, some time has passed and so now they should be over it. So like, any advice for, it, it takes a long time if you lose someone that you really love. So months, years later. Look, we talked about this before. I mean, the worst thing you can say to somebody is, why aren't you over this yet? Right. Because if you're saying that, they're obviously not over it. Again, it's a very small percentage of people that develop what we call pathological grief. Mm-hmm. And that's someone that like, you know, they lose a husband and five years later, they haven't left the house, you know, or they haven't, you know, they, they haven't been able to move on at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Or someone that's lost a child, God forbid, who hasn't been able to move on at all. You know, that, that, then there's medical intervention needed, usually medication needed. But for most people, they're going to move on at their own pace in their own way. Right. And, you know, unless it becomes, you know, pathological, people have to be patient. Yeah. People have to be patient. Okay. You know, I have a friend, she lost her husband seven years ago. It's been seven years. She just, just now felt like she could start to date. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. And, you know, three years ago, everybody was saying you should be dating, you should move on. You know, they were married 36 years. They had a fabulous marriage. She wasn't ready. Right. Sure. And right. now she's, it's still hard, but she's ready. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. As a culture. So, you know, it, 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 it depends. As I said, there's no book of rules and there's no timetable unless it becomes pathological. And that's rare. It really is rare. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know, even these, I was thinking about, you know, the parents uh, where my house is that I'm at right now in Connecticut is very close to Newtown where oh. all those children were shot. 
And, um, you know, those parents, my yoga teacher up here is very involved in that community. We actually went out and did some work early on with the families. And those families had losses that were unspeakable the way their children died. But most of them have gone on and they have found meaning. They become activists. They're gun anti-gun right. activists. They're, they, you know, they found ways mm-hmm. to find purpose and meaning in their lives. That doesn't mean they don't have holes in their heart. They oh. do. Okay. And they always will. Right. But they found, as I said before, they found bridges over the holes. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I wish as a culture we could just give up the... If you know you need to get over it, especially right. by a certain time, but we just need to be a little bit. Do you know why we say that? No. You know why? Control. Because it's our own identification with that. Like we don't want we see them another person suffering, and we don't want to suffer like that. So if they're not suffering, it means we don't ever have to suffer. Uh-huh. So in a way, when sure. we're telling people to get over it, it's it's kind of self-serving. Right. It's like, if that ever happened to me, would I be like this? Right, <laughs> right, right. Oh, my Lord. Right. Okay. Or it's making me feel bad, so I don't want you to do that anymore. Right. That's right. <laughs> oh, That's my right. goodness. Another thing about the time is, for some reason, we can't figure out why, but our grandmother, my grandmother, her mother has finally been able to start talking about mom's dad in this COVID thing. We can't figure out why randomly at 58 years later. I was given a box of these letters from my aunt that, you know, was, they were written by my, my father. He was just so young when he died and he was a young doctor and you know, all that kind of stuff. And so every time we opened the Pandora's box, I call it, you know, mom would burst into tears when she tried to explain things. So that's why I never wanted to see that box. And all of a sudden now, She's having fun with it. She's laughing. She's like, I can't wait to tell you. In one of the letters, your father was jealous because I had a date with somebody else. All of a sudden, it's like she's ready. And I'm still thinking when I go over there, she's probably going to burst into tears. I'm going to feel bad again. But we'll see. But like you said, it just takes, sometimes it takes. And that's interesting. And I'm not sure why COVID would have done that. But it must be interesting for you to see her not acting the way she always did about it exactly so and and what does that mean for your grief about your dad it's in you know it's it's all very interesting that way now i'm gonna have to go through it all again i think (laughs) (laughs) i don't know it's just an interesting complicated thing but anyway another discussion another time yes and then so let's say we're having a conversation out at a party or a bar or whatever and you're somehow it comes up that that person has lost a parent. I feel like a lot of people, they get super awkward. They don't acknowledge it. So they just say, I'm sorry. There's so many different ways that people react. Like, oh, what? Right. What, so what is some advice that you have for how we should respond to something like someone? Well, number one, I, most of us are pretty, we're, we're hardwired if we're fairly healthy people, to be attuned to the reactions in others. We call that emotional intelligence. So in some ways, you have to be attuned to the reaction of the person you're talking to. There are some people that don't want to talk about it, and there are other people that would welcome you saying, I'm so sorry, do you Mm -hmm. want to talk about it? 
So, you know, you have to use your own um, perceptions of how somebody's reacting. But my feeling is um, that it, it never hurts to acknowledge somebody's loss and, and, and you know, and your, your compassion for that. And then you have to play it by ear with how they're reacting. Mm-hmm. Some people want to talk about their traumas endlessly and other people don't. And I think as friends or acquaintances, you have to be sort of mindful of where they're at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you know, people, people give you signals. Sure. But, then, but it's, yeah. And it's complicated because they'll say, it's fine. It's fine. It was a long time ago. You know? Right. And then you can say, you know, if you ever want to talk about it, I'm here, you yeah, know? That's perfect because you know they don't really mean that. Right. But they're probably meaning this isn't the time. So um, what interested you in the first place in trauma? Um, well, I had my own traumatic stuff in my childhood. And I think that um, I was always very, very fascinated with what made people tick and what made people behave the way they did. And then what really got me going academically was... Um, Um, After college, I got a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, and um, I started meeting women who had been sexually abused by family members in my work and um, doing counseling. And um, I look back, and this was in the late 70s, and no one mentioned the word incense, in, incense, um, incest in my program. It wasn't even in the index wow. of any of my uh, textbooks. Wow. And this was 1978. Wow. And um, I became fascinated. How come I was hearing about this in patients, but nobody was talking about it? And it's too long for today uh-huh. to get into why sexual abuse of women went underground uh-huh. for many, many years. Uh, unfortunately, Freud sort of was part of that because he denied what he knew. Um, but the woman's movement, which came about in the late 70s, um, really sparked women being able to start opening up again. And so when I started the doctoral program in 1980, one of the first things you have to do is come up with your dissertation topic. And I decided I was going to look into sexual abuse. And in 1980, the American Psychological and Psychiatric Associations adopted a new diagnosis for the first time, which was post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. So I started working um, on my doctorate at the same time that the field now recognized that there was um, a constellation of symptoms that were related to trauma. And my interest, and so I began with that, and then it expanded into um, other areas of trauma, which of course included 9-11. Um, and I work with um, veterans all through the um, 90s, uh, Vietnam veterans, then Iraqi and Afghanistan veterans. Persian Gulf veterans. So, you know, between the woman coming forward and talking about their sexual abuse and the veterans coming forward and admitting their traumas, Mm -hmm. um, you know, my interest just expanded. And 
Um, I'm also a mind-body believer. I do believe that our body reflects a lot of what's going on in our psyches. Right. And so um, where the field is heading right now is more and more into the mind-body somatization embodiment of trauma um, so that we don't only look at how the trauma works out in our lives and our interpersonal relationships, but also what goes on in our bodies and what symptoms we develop. So that's sort of where the field is heading at this point. I'm thrilled about that because a lot of times there's a physical symptom that can't be fixed with medicine and it turns out it's because of something right. in the mind, right? And you can really get physically sick and all that. So. Right. And it, it wouldn't be unusual if you were a patient of mine to be sitting, when we used to sit in the office together, which I hope I will again someday, right. for me to say, as they're telling me something, where are you feeling this in your body right now? Wow. You know, um, and, and, and because where we hold things in our bodies are often, um, for me, guideposts to where the trauma is for the person. Fascinating. Yeah, that could be a whole other talk. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about this stuff endlessly, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And one of the articles that I read that you wrote talking about sorrow hurts terribly, but it will not kill us. I think that's yeah. a nice reminder. Yes, and that goes back to the mind-body thing. You know, the more we can release our feelings, the less it wreaks havoc on our bodies. You know, so, you know, um, it, it, you, you would laugh, but if you came to my office and you lost your voice, mm. let's say you came and you had laryngitis, I might say to you, what can't you say today? Oh, wow. If you came in with a headache, what, what, do you, what can't you think about today? If you came in a, with a, with, you know, your stomach ache, what can't you stomach today? Right, 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 right. I used yeah. to be a kindergarten teacher and sometimes when a child had a stomach ache, you know, we would go outside the hall and they would end up crying and saying, mom and daddy had a fight, you know? That yes. Kind of and children, uh, children reflect this because children somatize everything. You right. know, they don't have, they don't have the sophistication or the words to always tell us what's going on. So for them, they get headaches, they get stomach aches, they get constipated, whatever it is. Right. We have kind of mentioned this next question, but let's see if you have anything else to say about it. But okay, yeah. advice for someone about grieving death. I mean, I think we've addressed this, but you know, I guess the fact that they're never gonna really get over it, but they are gonna learn to. Well, here's how I here. Let me give you a metaphor I use. Okay, I look at life as a tapestry right? With, with threads, different threads. Some of the threads are golden, wonderful things that happen in our life. Birth of children, grandchildren, love, friendships, uh, successes. And there are some things that are traumatic threads in our life, like death and loss, illness. Um, the work is to be able to weave those more difficult threads into the tapestry of our life in a way that that doesn't disrupt us too much. Mm -hmm. So that if you were looking at a tapestry and there was a big thread sticking out, it would, it would, um, that's where your eyes would go. It would go to what's wrong with that piece in the tapestry. Mm -hmm. The work of mental health and therapy and self-therapy is to be able to weave what happens to us into a narrative 
in the tapestry of our life that we can live with. Yes. That, makes that we can live with. I like that metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard and that it takes work. It's, it's not easy. If it was easy, you know, life would be pretty boring, wouldn't it? If everything was just easy. Right. 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 Yeah. So it's kind of like getting over it. How do you recover from that simultaneously being at peace, but you want to honor and remember that loved one? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you said that because that's, that's another very important aspect that I talk about all the time with my patients. You can have paradoxical feelings. Mm-hmm. You can feel sad that you lost somebody, but also be happy in your life at the same time. Yeah. You can, if you have a terminally ill parent or, or friend or God forbid child, you can wish that they would, their suffering could end. That doesn't mean you don't want to lose them uh-huh. or that you'd be happy to lose them. Mm-hmm. You can have dual feelings. Okay. That makes sense. No, they, and, and I think that's so important. Yes, indeed. And it goes back to what we were talking about before. You can feel bad for whatever's going on in your life as a result of COVID. That doesn't mean that you're not mindful that people have it worse. Right. Right. Okay. That's good. It kind of gives you permission. It's, mm-hmm. it's okay to have moments where you are happy and you're not being unfaithful to your husband that you love that died. Right. That's right. That's right. And that's part of moving on. That's how you move on is I can still honor and grieve the person I lost, Mm -hmm. but I can also go on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why is grief necessary? Oh, that's a good question. Why is grief necessary? Because we're human. Because what would it be if we didn't have grief? What would that mean about our attachments? Right. If we didn't have attachment, we wouldn't have grief. Mm -hmm. So the price that we pay for the most incredible gift of attachment to others is the possibility that there will be a loss. Mm -hmm. Ah, this makes sense. So when um, someone says to you, you know, I lost a spouse or a parent when I was in, you know, like if someone lost their parent when they were in college and they shut down and they're like, I'm never going to love anybody. I'm never going to get married or anything because I don't want to go through that pain again. But if they do that, then they will lose the joy of being. That's right. That's right. And it doesn't even have to be death. uh, You know, I deal with this all the time when people get broken up with. I'm never going to trust again. I'm never going to love again. And then, you know, what, you know, okay, okay, you went through this terrible trauma of, you know, the breakup, but does that mean you're going to be alone for the rest of your life? Right. No. Right. We, we need attachments. The price we pay is that eventually, eventually we are going to have to detach Debt detaches us from everything we've known, but we can't live our lives not attaching because someday we're going to die. Right. 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 That's right. 
<laughs> okay. Oh, goodness. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Where can people find you? Are you accepting new patients? Um, I, I, you know, they, uh, people, they, they, my, you have my email address. I did just take down my website because I'm redoing it. Um, it was outdated. Um, but my, um, they can reach me through the Karen at drkarennyc.com. Okay. Um, I'm pretty busy, but I, you know, I would certainly <laughs> talk to somebody that called. Um, you know, I'm always interested in getting new patients, but um, so you know, but they can reach out that way, and and hopefully I'll have a new website up pretty soon. I want to put all my new content on it. That's exciting. Thank you, everyone, for joining, and we'll see you next time. If you like what you heard, tell a friend about our show, subscribe to our podcast, and also scroll to the bottom and give a rating and or a review. Those are the best ways for other people to find out about our podcast. See you next time. Bye.